0: with John chapter 3. So if you wouldn't mind, please take your Bibles and open there. This is the second part of a three-part look at the Holy Spirit with some of the pertinent things that Jesus wanted to tell us from His earthly ministry. For a lot of people, the Holy Spirit seems to be a seer- source of fear. I wonder if sometimes that's because for the longest time we called it the Holy Ghost, right? Right? And we need to correct all that, not just by calling the Holy Spirit a it. He's he's a him. But but maybe Holy Spirit works a lot better for us than Holy Ghost. How many of you grew up in a church? Holy Ghost. Yeah, so there you go, right? Did that seem scary to you? I'm curious. A little bit, some, yes, some, no. Okay, it's good. It's good. I guess it all depends on how it was presented, right? Uh, For some of us, maybe our brothers and sisters and other denominations have scared us to death of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That need not be so as well. We are actually commanded in the New Testament as church-age believers to walk in the Spirit. In fact, we find out that by walking in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is one of the greatest ways to counteract when this dead flesh wants to draw us in a sinful direction? We walk by the Spirit. Well, what in the world does that mean? That sounds like the most ethereal, nebulous thing I've ever heard in my life. It's like a a puff of smoke that I can't really sort through. What does that mean? It simply means being obedient to God's Word. That's what it is. The Spirit of God is never going to communicate anything to us that it is not of the Word of God. And the reason is, is because the Spirit of God is the author of the Word of God. The Word of God will not become living and active to us unless the Spirit of God is involved. One of the greatest reasons why maybe sometimes we find Bible reading or Bible study dull is because we have not stopped and asked for the author to get involved in the enlightening process. This is a supernatural book that we all hold. It has a supernatural author. And therefore, we need some supernatural help to help break through the natural so that we understand what we need to know about it and what He would have us to know about it. We all, we all good together on that? So just to recap some things, what we saw last week was going through Old Testament times and even into the Gospel narrative periods, we saw that the Holy Spirit was often given to people in order to accomplish a work, that the Holy Spirit was intricately involved in the very creation of the world, that the Holy Spirit was anointed upon people. Don't everybody get health, wealth, and prosperity freak out on the word anointed, okay? Anointed upon people so that they would have the power to accomplish what God had called them to do, to supply them with the discernment that was necessary. But we also saw something very scary, and that was, in Old Testament times, disobedience and rebellion could cause for God to draw away, to call back, to remove His Holy Spirit. And we actually see that in the life of Israel's first earthly king, Saul. That's a scary place to be. When you think about that walking in blessing, God supernaturally guiding what you're doing, setting you up for success, and then because of disobedience, unbelief, we forfeit that. Thank the Lord that that is not the case for this present dispensation. Instead, the Holy Spirit has been given as a deposit, as a guarantee. Now, these are all things that we'll look at later about the Holy Spirit. What we want to be concerned with right now is what Jesus' is teaching is about the Holy Spirit. But I promise you this, if you sit down to do a word study, uh, how many people here in hermeneutics? Raise your hand. Okay, so all of you who aren't, Look around. Raise your hands, people. There you go. Grab one of these people and say, hey, can you help me do a word study on Holy Spirit? And they will say, because I love the Lord Jesus and I'm here to uplift my brother or sister in Christ, absolutely I will do that. So you got way more than what you bargained for getting into hermeneutics, didn't you? But that's okay. And going through the, spirit, going through the Word and documenting what it has to say about the Spirit of God, it is an incredible comforting, assuring study it's excellent so we're in john 3 and what's interesting is is that the spirit of god isn't so much mentioned a lot in john 3 this isn't one of those passages we go to because well it's mentioned 16 times in these verses or something like that no not necessarily but what this passage says about the spirit of god is undeniably important so now we'll start in chapter 3 verse 1 Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now let's stop for a second. We are going verse by verse to break this down. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is someone who was considered a a lay leader, but had taken a pledge before a group of people to uphold the law at all costs within society, and they eventually gained so much power that they were 6,000 people strong as an entity. And ended up being able to sway a lot of the political processes and especially the religious upbringing and teaching of the people. If you had a question about something, you would go to a Pharisee in order to get some clarification about it and they would be leading you in certain directions. The problem is, is as the Pharisees came to be about, and chances are when this idea took root was whenever Israel was exiled into Babylonian captivity. I mean, they were away from the temple, They are away from all the scrolls that they had of the Old Testament writings. Everybody's trying to recite everything by oral tradition in order to keep their fervency for Yahweh intact, even though they were away from their land. And so you had this development of, well, how can we do this? And it ended up becoming an institutionalized entity. Well, in doing so, they would take such things as, well, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Ten Commandments say that, right? We all read that? Yes? Okay, so we know that. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's what it says for the Jewish people. And then you had this. You've probably been a part of a meeting like this and you wanted to carve out your eyeballs by the time you were done. So what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? Well, I think it means... No, no, no. It means this. Well, I, you know what? We haven't considered this yet. And next thing you know, you've got a well-intentioned religious think tank. Okay? And what do they do? They end up putting together a lot of guidelines in order to help them understand what God meant by don't work on the Sabbath. Well, here's what that means. And here are 4,000 pages that are going to clarify what work is and what work is not. You can only carry your pail of water so far. You carry it anymore, you're in sin. That's the idea. So notice they took... What should normally be seen as freeing principles of what it is to have intimate friendship with their Creator and live a life that is obedient and compliant with what He has declared is right and wrong and they've strangle-holded it? Is that even good grammar? Oh man, my wife is an English teacher. It's going to hurt later. (laughs) They strangle-held it? They strangled it with a hold of death. See, I've got to get it in there. To the point where no one could operate, move, breathe, blink without the fear of sinning. Now some of you have come from churches like that. Some of us would sit here and say, you know what? We kind of live in a society like that. Don't you think it's interesting that God was able to govern a nation of people with ten laws? For the Pharisees, it was, you better do it right. In fact, they are the ones who are probably responsible for abusing the idea of the law of Moses into something that one must uphold in order to be accepted by God rather than what it was to apply it to your life and live in a fellowship experience with God. They made it about acceptance rather than friendship. Well, that's damaging right there. Have any of you ever heard? You know, I'm, I know it's never come from here, knowing Pastor Steve. But have any of you ever heard, if you don't uphold the Ten Commandments, you're, you're probably not saved. Well, well, here's the reason. You're saved by grace, but you got to... Live up to the Ten Commandments in order to, to keep that salvation going. Anybody ever heard that? No? Okay, so some of you have. So notice, that Pharisaical abuse is even poured over into our current time to where you've at least heard of it or been under that teaching at some point or read it somewhere. So notice, why why, why am I harping on this? Because Nicodemus is coming to Jesus with all of this previous indoctrination about what it is to be right and accepted in the sight of God. Now, not only that, but at the end of verse 1, we see that he is a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was connected to the Sanhedrin. What the Sanhedrin was, was it was the judicial court system of the Jewish people. And there were only between 70 and 71 people that were involved in this. Some commentators back and forth about how many there actually were. But here's what this tells you. Not only was he a part of the group that defined the laws about what it was to keep the laws of God as given in the Old Testament, but he was also the one who had to pronounce judgment on people of whether or not they were law breakers. Does everybody see this as kind of a big deal? Yes. Okay, now let me give you a little reference real quick. It's in your notes, I believe. It may not be. I don't remember. Uh, That was last week. But if you want to write it down next to it, if you want to write John 19.39 next to Nicodemus' name, Later on, when Jesus is crucified, and he gives up his spirit, he dies, and Nicodemus goes to ask for the body, he actually brings a lot of expensive, expensive perfumes and oils and all kinds of things in order to prepare his body for burial. What that tells you is, is that Nicodemus was rich. He was a wealthy man. So notice that Nicodemus isn't just some guy on the street corner we wouldn't know from anybody else, no. You would go to him for an Old Testament question in the first century if you had it. You would stand before him if your donkey had broke a speeding law. So that's something else you'd have to deal with. And he was also there at the crucifixion of Jesus and ready for the anointing of his body so that it could be buried properly according to the customs so that he not stinketh as Lazarus did, right? Everybody know that one? King James, Lazarus? Lord, he stinketh. Don't roll back the rock. I think that's hilarious. I think that's great. We need to bring the word stinketh back. All right, verse two. So notice, this man came to Jesus by night. Now here's the thing. He either came to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be recognized by any of his peers. I mean, that's usually the reason why we move around at night. We're usually doing something shady we shouldn't be doing. We're going to get in trouble so we don't want anybody to see us. Or it could be the fact that all of the rabbis in that time would use the evening hours in order to study the law so they would be prepared for whatever they had to use it for the next day. So everyone committed the evening to study hours. Well, maybe he decided during Nicodemus' time of regular study, he was going to go and seek out this man because he knew that he wouldn't have crowds of people around him at this time in order to have a conversation that wouldn't be interrupted. It's possible. Now notice he says to him, Rabbi. Anybody know what Rabbi means? Teacher. Now, isn't this interesting? Take a second and look down at verse 10. Look, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Stop for a second. The teacher of Israel, who Jesus said was the teacher of Israel, being Nicodemus, has come to Jesus and has started his address and conversation by calling him teacher. What does that tell you about Nicodemus approaching Jesus, has he got some kind of plan up his sleeve where he's looking to? We're going to catch you, Jesus. I mean, is that what's going on here? No, it's not. Does everybody see that? Obviously, there's something going on in Jesus's life that Nicodemus recognizes. I am below this man. Something is going on. I need to seek him out in order to get some clarification on something. To just figure more out about him. To find out where I'm going wrong. This is an extremely humble approach that someone who has a prioritized status in this society is taking. It's a really big deal that Nicodemus would humble himself to come to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Where's Jesus staying at? He's not at the Super 8. You see what I'm saying? Didn't he tell his followers the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? So it's not like he's drawing attraction because he's holed up here for the weekend. Everybody come see him at this conference and he's not doing that. He is poor, 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 and all he's concerned about is doing what God told him to do in fulfilling his ministry. So it's a, it's a very radical caste system change shift for Nicodemus to humble himself to come and speak to Jesus. Now watch what he says here. Rabbi, we know. Stop. Isn't it just Nicodemus? Why does he say we? Is anybody with him? Doesn't seem to be so, but what does this tell you? He's speaking on behalf of the Pharisees, which tells you the Pharisees have had some sort of conversation about, what do you guys think about Jesus? Now, can you imagine sitting in on that? Because they're all concerned about the law. So probably the first thing they're going to look for is, where has Jesus broken the law? Do you think they found anything? I don't think so either. Can you imagine the conversation that was stirred amongst them? In fact, do me a favor real quick. Put your finger here. Turn over to John 11. This is a really interesting conversation that they have. I just want to show you a couple of verses 47, 48. Now, what's great is is this is after the Lazarus incident, right? He doesn't stinketh. he's getting ready to walk out of that tomb. It's great. And look at chapter 11 of John 47. Look, it says, Therefore, after this happened, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council. Uh Uh-oh, they had a business meeting. right? And look what it says. And we're saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Now stop. Was it undeniable what Jesus was doing? Everybody saw it. Everybody knows. Even the Pharisees had to admit the truth about Jesus here. Now watch this. If we let him go on like this, now pay attention because this is what drives the heart to kill. This is important. Look at the heart in this situation. If we let him go on like this, all men will, ding, 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 believe in him, and the Romans will come, because they were over that segment of Israel at that time, And take away both our place and our nation. This guy's performing great signs. Notice it's something that they knew. We can't deny what he's doing. He just raised a guy from the dead. Anybody seen that happen in your lifetime? No, but if it did, would you be talking about it? Everybody would be talking about it. And it wasn't done in isolation, folks. Jesus had no problem doing His miracles out for people to see. Everybody knew He was raised. It spread like hot fire. It was on the front page of USA Today at that time. Well, Israel Today at that time. Everybody knows, but notice what they said. If people start believing in Him, we're going to lose power. We're going to lose influence. We're going to lose status. And if you keep reading... We've got to have a solution. How do you deal with Jesus? How do you deal with Him? You can't deny what He's doing. So what do they decide? Let's kill Him. You know, the Romans have got this really interesting thing they've been working on for 100 years or so called crucifixion. Let's see how many signs He performs while we crucify Him. We've got to get rid of Him. Everybody see how evil this is okay just making sure and notice it's all based off of power position prestige how does society view me am i going to lose my platform scary stuff scary stuff so let's go back to john 3 we know that you have come from god as a teacher and here's the explanation for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him now stop for a second notice they call them signs signs are extremely important throughout the gospel of john in fact there are seven signs that he documents that attest to the fact that he is the messiah and the whole purpose statement of john's gospel at the end says many other signs jesus did that are not written in this book but these are written that you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in His name. Guys, the Gospel of John is the only book in our Bible that is written to lost people. And it was written with the purpose of laying out historical facts about what Jesus did while He was on earth and how He taught so that when somebody sees this, they would understand there is no other conclusion I can make here except He is God's Son. If you believe in Him, you have eternal life, done deal. That was the whole purpose why John sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and wrote this. So the signs are extremely important. You can't just believe in Jesus because of the signs. Yes, you can. That's why John wrote the book. So let's not discredit that and start making this idea, well, that's just a head knowledge. You need a heart knowledge. This whole 18 inches away from salvation idea that people have sold is garbage. Okay? It is. To understand and affirm something and have a conviction about it here is to have a conviction here. If you can separate those things, you are the greatest biologist I've ever seen in my life. You have an incredible anatomy. But I don't know how you can do that from a conviction that drives you to determine whether something is true or not. So the signs were given to convince and convict. That's important. Now if you think back to what we looked at in Matthew chapter 12, The Pharisees said, oh, the miracles he does is from who? It's from Satan. So notice, they commit a sin that is unpardonable. It's the unpardonable sin. Because they've attributed God's glorious works to Satan's credit. Bad, bad, bad. In fact, we would go beyond, like we did, from unbelief and say, no, they know who he is. They see the signs. It's anti-belief. That's what it is. They know, they just refuse to believe it. Obviously, we saw that from the John 11 section. But after that, just four verses later in 1228, Jesus says, But if the works that I do are by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Everybody remember that? Okay, so notice the signs, these miracles, these things that he does, extremely important because they are a witness to who he is. They are testifying to the truthfulness of his person as God's son. Now watch this. Notice it says, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, verse 3, it is just like Jesus to reach into his robe and pull out a monkey wrench and throw into whatever conversation you're trying to have with him. Doesn't he do that? You ever read along in your Bible like, what in the world is he talking about? But here's one thing. Jesus is going to get across this point regardless of what we're talking about. Here's what he says: Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, that means for sure, or I'm telling you all the truth, that's the Kentucky translation. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot here, isn't there? Jesus is telling you the truth. The idea is is that you must be born again, or you cannot see the kingdom of God now trivia question do you think that John or since Jesus is speaking what he's writing down means something different about kingdom of God than Matthew Mark and Luke maybe I'm not clarifying that question correctly is there any reason to think that the kingdom of God is anything other than what the other gospel writers have said that it is no there's no reason at all so this idea of adding something to it about well this is what it means in order to Uh, you know there's a kingdom going on now but it's not really going on but it'll physically go on later all this confusion that seems to permeate christianity about what the kingdom is notice that that doesn't exist here jesus is very clear you must be born again in order to see this kingdom you will not see it without another birth everybody got that okay now real quick kingdom of god What did Matthew promote as the kingdom of God? What does Mark and Luke promote as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? I believe that both of those are synonymous. They're one and the same. It seems very clear, especially from Luke 19. But in doing that, what is he talking about? He's talking about the exact same thing that the previous 39 books of the Old Testament spoke of. The Messiah will come and he will reign and he will take out all evil and opposition that comes against the establishment of his kingdom. According to Daniel, it is a kingdom that is made without hands, and when it is established, it will be there forever. No one will overthrow it. When it happens, it is here to stay. It is the rule of life. And when you go through the Bible and you unfold more of the Old Testament, what do you find out? Well, it's on David's throne. He'll be ruling from Jerusalem. It'll be a theocratic government. It's going to literally happen. Does it sound good? I'm waiting for that day. In fact, didn't we just do something that celebrates until he comes? That's the whole reason why we do it. And when is the time that he comes? Well, for us as the church, believers in Christ, it's the rapture, but let's be honest, as cool as the rapture is going to be, as awesome as it's going to be for us to blink and not be here anymore, can you imagine that? Gone. Can you imagine what you're going to see after that? Right? See, this is why 1 John one 9 do don't have your hand in the cookie jar, you might blink and not be here. In fact, if you get raptured and the cookie jar is there with you, you know you're in trouble, right? Okay? Let's just be honest. So, but imagine how great that's going to be. But let's be honest. What we really want to see, and think about where we are in society right now, what we really want to see is the Almighty Christ of God ruling perfectly, righteously, graciously, lovingly while sitting on a throne. He's in control of all of it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Why is that? So that your will will be done on earth as it already is where? Notice, the perfect will of God is going on in heaven. When we pray that prayer, we're praying for the end of the world. God, please bring an end to the world so that your perfect will there will be your perfect will here that's the kingdom when christ rules perfectly so that's a that's a grand occasion now notice this has got to be a little hard for nicodemus wait a second i'm keeping all the right things i'm not doing all the wrong things and i've got all my 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 you know ducks in a row kind of thing here and so you're telling me all of a sudden that i'm not going to be able to see this kingdom unless there's a rebirth that takes place now let me give you the five dollar scrabble word for born again It's regeneration, and that idea is is to be made alive. It's when God makes a dead person alive. If you are here today, living and breathing, before you came to faith in Christ, or if you have not come to faith in Christ, you are a dead person as far as God is concerned. He sees you as someone who is disqualified from life with Him because we are not only sinners born into this world, but we sin and, if truth be told, a lot of times we like it. So we need to be saved from being sinners and from sinning, but also from ourselves who want to talk ourselves into sinning. We need a lot of help. So the idea to be born again is to be regenerated, to be made alive. We'll talk about when that happens here in a moment. God must impart life to dead people in order for them to be in a position of acceptance to Him. Dead people don't go to heaven. Alive people do. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, we want you to know this message beyond anything else, that Jesus loves you, He died for you, He paid for your sin, He offers you eternal life freely by believing it is yours permanently. But without it, there is no place for you in His presence. There's not anything you can do and anything that you try to bring are all more things that you need to be saved from. It is offered freely. So when we talk about being born again, we talk about God making dead sinners alive. And there has to be a way to do that. Let's move on real quick. Notice Nicodemus's response. I love it. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? That's a good response, isn't it? I mean, it's just like logical, like... uh. I mean, he probably thought Jesus was a whack job at this moment. What is he talking... Can you imagine? He wanted somebody there to talk to. What is he talking about here? Be born again? How can you be reborn when you're old? Now look at this. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Don't you wish you were watching this conversation? Can you imagine if you were just a fly on the wall? You, I mean, can you imagine... A teacher and a ruler of Israel is. You mean my mama's got to bear me again? You know, Jesus was like, oy vey. <laughs> right? Good grief. I mean, I, I firmly believe that Jesus probably rolled his eyes a lot. Okay. I just do. And I think we're going to see some of that here in just a minute. But, but think about it. F- for someone who is on the outside looking in and get this is doing all the right things, but is still absent of the life that God requires. This is the only conclusion that a dead person can come to. Imagine the thought process, as silly as it sounds. Sometimes we make mistakes as Christians that we stopped realizing how lost people think about things, and that's why we have a hard time identifying with them and leading them to faith in the gospel we have to remember they're thinking of a position of no life and so it's all about how good could i be what can i accomplish what do i need to do what's the checklist before me and this guy is sitting here literally thinking how in the world am i going to get back in a womb it's crazy isn't it so as jesus always does he reaches in his robe and he pulls out another monkey wrench verse 5 Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, so we're, we're going along the same lines as verse 3. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, whoa, thanks a lot, Jesus. That clears it up. You know, I was all confused there for a minute, but... Now I don't have a clue what you're talking about, Right? What is he talking about here? I've been amazed at how commentators have rolled over and over and over this. Different views. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you my perspective on it. I may be wrong. If you come up with something that is more satisfactory, let me know. But I believe that this jives pretty well hermeneutically. Okay? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of... Now, this is where you get your pens out because you've got a listing here. One, water... That's got to happen. Born of water and the Spirit. Number two, the Spirit. Must be born of water and born of the Spirit. Does everybody see that? Does everybody see that a person must experience two births in order for this to happen? Okay, pay attention. Because it's not any different from how Jesus is clearly laying it out. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now stop. Does everybody notice in verse 3 it says see the kingdom of God? Notice here it says enter the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus is identifying them as one and the same. Jesus is clarifying the situation. He is talking about what it is to be born again. And notice if it's born again, born a second time. Time born another birth is the idea then what he's done here in clarifying in verse 5 is he's actually letting you know there are two births that must happen here now watch how he clarifies this look at verse 6 that which is born of flesh is what flesh anybody had any babies lately okay by having that baby Was it a spirit baby? No. No one in here has birthed spirit babies. So notice right here, he's telling you, if it's born of flesh, it's flesh. Anybody want to guess which birth that is from verse 5? Birth, number one, it's birth from water. That's the idea. Now whether that means amniotic fluid or something like that, I don't know. But what it seems to be consistent with the text is Jesus is promoting two births as a clarification, and then he gives you two designations in verse 6 in order to classify them. So whatever is born of flesh is the flesh. Someone must be first physically born in order to be a candidate for seeing, entering the kingdom of God. But there must be a second birth that takes place. Look what it says. It says, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So not only do we have to have a physical birth, you have to have a spiritual birth. This disqualifies this idea of demons being able to go to heaven. There are some people that believe this. They talk about demon faith, and they get that from James 2, and they've twisted Scripture all up. Jesus didn't die for demons. He died for people. Those that are physically born and therefore have been born into sin and are sinners, He died for them. Now they need to be able to see the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God by being born again and that bearing again can only happen by the Spirit. The Spirit must do it. Now look at verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you. Now why did Jesus say that? Probably because Nicodemus' jaw is on the floor. What is going on here? Am I taking crazy pills? Maybe. But notice Jesus is being very upfront and truthful with him. Physical birth, spiritual birth. Don't be surprised I'm explaining this to you. Look what he says here. You must be born again. I heard you the first time. Jesus, good grief. I just can't wrap my mind around it. And so Jesus does something else. He reaches in his robe and guess what he pulls out? Another monkey wrench. Good grief. You might as well be a mechanic. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen to me, guys. When I get into Jesus' Theology 101 class, this is the verse I'm going to first. I'm going to be like, I need a full-on commentary, 12-point font, 10-point footnotes, one-page margins on this Jesus, please, right now. Help. Because all I can gain from this is, is the wind unpredictable? Yes. Can we see the wind? No. Do we see the effects of the wind? Yes. But I feel in my heart, and gosh, that's so terrible for me to say, I feel in my heart that there's something more going on here about what this rebirth looks like when the Spirit gets involved in somebody. When the Spirit actually grabs a hold of somebody and is bringing them from death Into life. Everybody notice that's the Spirit's job. That's what the Spirit does. We don't do that. We can't do that. We couldn't do that for ourselves. We needed the Spirit to do that for us. But we are to be faithful ministers of the message, yes? Absolutely. So now watch what goes on here. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, I love it, how can these things be? Poor Nicodemus. Now here's what I love. Jesus Christ is God, yes? Jesus knows everything, doesn't He? Here's what I love about the humanness of our Lord. Look at what He says in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? This is a rebuke. Jesus is essentially saying of everybody in this nation, you should know this. You should get it. And you don't? <sighs> everybody see that He's frustrated. How amazing is that? Oy vey. Exactly. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we, and chances are the we that Jesus uses there is speaking of the Trinity. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, this is perfectly consistent, and I've got it in your notes. It's perfectly consistent with the way Jesus lived his life. I'm not telling you anything that the Father hasn't told me. I don't want to do anything except what the Father has called me to do. I just want to live my earthly life in constant obedience to God my father well guess what the spirit isn't any different the spirit and the son both live in willing subjection to god the father so that his will is done perfectly in their lives so notice they're testifying of what they've seen and what they've heard look what it says and you do not accept our testimony in other words i'm telling you the truth didn't you see the truly truly i'm not lying but notice what it says after that it gives an explanation Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, notice the problem is unbelief, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And what's the answer to that? Because we always answer questions in Scripture, you can't. If you can't accept earthly things, there's no way you're going to be able to grab spiritual things. It just can't happen. So notice what happens after that. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, you may say, why in the world does he throw that in there? I'm glad you asked, because I want to tell you. The reason is, is because if Jesus has had a first hand eyewitness account in the realms of heaven, because he is God, is intimately interactive with God, in fact, read John 17 sometimes in your devotional time, where it talks about the relationship that the son and the father had before creation ever came into being. Beautiful, incredible, amazing, mind blowing stuff. It will, it will draw your heart to humbleness like you've never seen before. It's fantastic stuff. But Jesus is saying, I've been there. I've seen it. I'm engrossed in it. I know all about it. And I am here, sent of God, to tell you about it. I'm telling you what it is to be born again. I'm telling you nothing but what God has told me. And I've been there, and I am here to tell you. Now watch what happens. How are we doing on time? We're good. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now pause, because you're going to know we studied the Bible today. Turn to Numbers 21. Oh yeah. Anybody else sweating? I need my glory fan up here. Good grief. Anybody cold? Let me ask that. You're cold? Sure you're cold? I know, which is 70 degrees better than it was a week ago. I'm loving it. Everybody look at Numbers 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers, good, so we know it. Yep. Knock the dust off of it, turn there, 21. Now let me just give you a brief little little run into this kind of deal. The Israelites were going to have some problems with the Canaanites, and so they called upon God. Please get involved and give us the victory. Okay, I'll do that. So gave him the victory. And we're going to pick up in verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4. Then they sent out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became, uh uh-oh, impatient because of the journey. They were no longer content. The people spoke against, uh uh-oh, watch this who god and a lot of instances you're going to find when you read through the old testament is they spoke against moses they spoke against moses nope now we're speaking against yahweh and moses now watch this why have you brought us up out of egypt to die in the wilderness it almost makes you say why didn't god just leave these complaining people in that place but aren't you glad he didn't leave us in our place Isn't that how gracious he is? Even when we complain against him, he loved us enough to rescue us. Notice, for there is no food. What about manna? Well, that doesn't count. And no water. And we loathe this miserable food. Man, dramatic, are they not? Verse 6, Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Judgment because of complaining against the Lord's gracious provision demonstrating unbelief though he had proved himself over and over. There comes a time when God just judges people. He says enough. We see some instances of that in the New Testament, We're not going to, and my goal is not to get hung up on that, but I think it's important for us to realize this shouldn't shock us. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, and Moses said, you're darn tootin' you sinned, and notice it says, because we have spoken against the Lord, notice before they used the word Elohim, God and Moses, and now they're using the word Yahweh, very important to understand why they're translated that way. We've spoken against Yahweh and you. Intercede with Yahweh that we may remove that he may remove the serpents from us, and Moses interceded for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, now I love this, watch it, don't miss this, guys. This is so important to get. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a stand, something that's that will, will uphold it. And it shall come about in a fiery serpent, a bronze serpent. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Everybody got that picture? Can you kind of see yourself sitting up in the stands with some popcorn, watching what's going on? Okay, John 3, go back. Go back quickly. I'm running on time. If I go over into Sunday school, I'm going to blame it on your flipping abilities, not on my preaching. So, you like that, Ruth? Yeah, any excuse I can use. John chapter 3.14, look at it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, Now, get it in your mind, okay? Even so, in the same way, must the Son of Man... Be lifted up. Let me give you something for that real quick. John 12, 32 and 33. If you want to write that down next to it, look it up later. We don't have time today. I'm sorry. That would have been a really great point in preaching, but I ain't got time for it. Uh, verse 15. Here's the reason. So that, now watch this. Here's the reason why. Just as Moses lifted up this serpent, so the Son of Man needs to be lifted up, put on a stable position and exalted so that people can look and live. Now watch this so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. I've actually read books where high-profile preachers and scholars have said, well, you don't understand. Those Israelites who were bitten had to drag themselves over to the serpent so they could see it. Did anybody see that Yahweh told Moses, make this serpent and hide it behind a rock and let all the people know, hey guys, if you want to be healed, it's back there. No! Exactly. You just had to look and live. That's it. Now, we can all be scientific people for a second. Everybody look out the window. that hard no do you feel like that you worked to accomplish that or was it that something was placed before you and you responded to it and by doing so you get the benefits from it yes notice it's no different in fact here's the amazing thing about the lifting up from john 12 32 and 33 john gives us a little commentary in there that says he spoke of his death How he was to be up, crucified on a cross for all to see. And we are told in that passage, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Why? Because the only requirement for salvation is to look and you live. Now, what does he equate looking with? Well, notice that 15 is pretty clear. So that whoever believes, There it is. Do you believe? What is belief? What is faith? Do you have a conviction that it's true? Are you looking at the evidence and saying, yes, that's it. That's right. Do you believe it? And so now he clarifies it with the verse that we all know, right? Here it is. Here's the explanation. God loves the world. There's your motivation that He gave His Son. There's how much you are worth to Him you are worth the amount of his son to him. So much so that he gave his son in order to make a relationship and increased fellowship with you and I possible. So he does that. He gave his son, his only begotten son. I'd be interested in doing a survey question about what you think of when you hear the word begotten. Come tell me later, but think about it for a little bit. That whoever does what? Believes. Praise the Lord. It does not say behaves. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How long is eternal life? Forever. You look, and everybody see that the eternal life is the living? You look, believe, and then what happens? You live. You believe in Christ, and you live. You believe in Christ, and He makes you alive notice it has nothing to do with you he didn't say hey guys put together your own bronze serpent and set it up no the imagery is clear somebody else is going to do the work for you and it's going to show the picture of the very thing that cost life everybody think it's interesting they were bitten by bronze serpents and yet what moses was told to erect was a bronze serpent Anybody notice what the symbol is in the medical field for a doctor? Yeah. It's a serpent around the pole. Why? Because you look and you live. That's where you go for healing life. That's the idea. Jesus, erected on the cross, what do you find? He is the picture of sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we, by faith in Him, could become the righteousness of God. I know this is hard to believe. This is the most incredible thing I've ever asked you to do since I've been here. But imagine for a moment this reality. It's not a lie. I am as righteous as Jesus is in God's sight. See, nobody can laugh at that. We can be sit there and go, that ain't right. Yeah, there's a part of it that I don't think is right because I know me. And you go, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. That's because it's grace. Grace doesn't make sense. The law says eye for an eye. Grace says regardless. The law says do. Grace says done. That's the difference. Now let's finish this up real quick. 17, 18. God did not send His Son into the world to judge. That's the reason for His second coming. He will judge then. But notice what it says but that the world might be saved through him might be saved why might they be saved because they need to believe that's the reason why that's the reason why the gospel message is so important for us to tell we tell people the gospel and don't load it down with works don't throw an anchor on there how people need to clean up their life before they come to jesus he paid for their sin while they were in sin and he did the same for us They don't need to become better people to be acceptable to God. They just need to believe in Jesus so they become acceptable to God. He is what makes them acceptable. He's what makes me acceptable and you acceptable. It's not anything I bring or do or say or nothing. I need help. Good grief every day. Verse 18. Now watch this. He who believes in Him is not judged. If you believe in Christ, you will not perish because of your sin. It is impossible. But notice what it says after that. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's as certain as the day is long. Why is that? Notice what he says. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If the need is to be born again, to be made alive to be regenerated because we are dead people, how do we become people who are made alive? When does the Spirit get involved and enact this in us to wake us up out of deadness and to resurrect us into lifeness? How is that possible? You look. You believe. And when you believe, you are given eternal life. When you look, you live. Everybody, see this. I can't think of one lost person in the world that wouldn't respond with, That's it? Yeah, that's it. God loves you so much that He gave Jesus to die for you, and He paid for all of your debt. And you will not come into condemnation because of those things. Because when you believe in Him, He makes you alive. And you are alive forever. The Spirit's work is in making people alive. Not anything we can do. We are to be the faithful messengers. But then we're also to stand back and watch what the Spirit will do. Everybody understand that? Now, I think I'm going to make a severe overstatement here. Or maybe it's an understatement. This is good news. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the selflessness of the grace that You have shown in Jesus Christ our Lord and the Spirit's important work in bringing people from death into life. Thank You, God, that You show mercy and that the blood of Jesus is paid for every sin. Thank You, God, that no one can outsin Your grace. And thank You, God, that You have made salvation simple. If there is anybody in our interactions that we have throughout the week somebody that maybe is on our heart right now who we know is not alive who is not living at this moment burden our hearts with being a faithful messenger of this good news God your love is profound your love is incredible It is unbelievable to think that You have supplied all of it. 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 Convince our hearts. Convince our our minds. Save us from unbelief about these things that the Gospel is that free and it is that simple and it is that important and it was that expensive to You that it costs the life of Your Son. And I pray, God, this be a cause of rejoicing. We need to be about Your business. So Father, motivate our hearts to be so. Convince us today by Your Spirit. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.